following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. What is up, everyone, and welcome to the Diabetes Podcast, where we discuss how to take control of your health and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Gary Pano, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. Welcome back, everyone and fellow Diabetes to the Diabetes Podcast. Uh, today, we have a very uh, special guest, Dr. Stefan Hussey, uh, who has been on a number of podcasts, um, has a thriving practice as well as a health coach, um, has two books out right now, and uh, is just a wealth of knowledge on top of being a funk mad practitioner and chiropractor, but is also a type 1 diabetic uh, so we are really excited to have him here on the podcast today and kind of dive deep into um, both, you know, his diabetic story as well as just, you know, more health and more things to understand. So welcome, Dr. Hussey. Thanks for having me. It's, it's awesome to be here. I'm excited about the conversation. Cool, cool. Uh, let's kind of start with, um, you know, you're a type 1 diabetic. What's, uh, how long have you been a uh, type 1 diabetic? Uh, I was diagnosed when I was nine years old, um, and I like to I like sharing, you know, kind of what drove my parents to take me to the doctor, because I think mm. it's different for a lot of people and mm. you know different ages. My brother is also type one, and he was diagnosed at age twenty two. Oh, um, oh wow! Yeah, which was you know when whenever he called me, it was like, hey, I'm having these symptoms. I was like, oh, I know exactly what you have, you know. But for mm -hmm. me, I was in third grade, and. Um, what I remember was just feeling really weird, specifically in computer lab. I don't know why in that class, but I just remember feeling like tired um, and like my, my, um, like my muscles were going to cramp at any minute, but they wouldn't cramp, you know, but they felt like they were going to. Mm -hmm. um, and then I remember the, I remember the computer lab teacher, like asking me why I had to go to the bathroom a lot um, all the time. <laughs> and so then my mom was just like, well, maybe I'll just take him to the doctor. And I remember that, uh, when they took my blood sugar at the at the office it was like over 700 or something like wow. that and so they were wow. like yeah you're you're type one and then they were like i was really confused as a nine-year-old but i just remember um you know the doctor being like you know it's it's nothing crazy you know he's gonna be okay but you need to be in the hospital by this afternoon we were like oh <laughs> and uh and i turned around and my mom was like crying and i was like what is going on right now um, and then I remember the doctor trying to explain to me what was happening in my body and just, you know, over my head, mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, yeah. So it's been, been a long time. What is that? 24 years or 25 years or something like that. Um, wow. for me. So, uh, yeah, it's been, been a long time and I've learned a lot along the way. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Wow. Now that's a, that's a pretty high number to come in. And so you weren't even hospitalized right then and there. They said, come back. That seems Straight. They said, they said, you know, go home at this point. It was probably like 11 or 12 or something like that. They said, go home, get your stuff and then check into the hospital by three. Oh, okay. All right. That makes a little more sense. Yeah. Uh, besides, you know, your brother, which was later. Yeah. Was anyone else in your family diabetic? Um, not type one. 
Uh, I mean, I've had grandparents mm. and great grandparents that were type two, but um, mm. not that I know of type one. I think I have some like maybe second and third cousins on my dad's side that are also type one. Um, but but yeah, just just me and my brother. Mm. Growing up, uh, you know, being nine years old, how was uh, being a type one for you throughout all that, all that education and what kind of relationship did you have with your diabetes during that, those times? Yeah. So I remember early on, I was just killing it. <laughs> I remember, and I was probably in a honeymoon <laughs> phase, you know? Um, but I remember going to the doctors and them just being like, but your A1C is 6.1. That's just crazy. You know, like, and, uh, and, they just couldn't believe that I was able to do that. And I don't know, I, I don't remember how I was doing it. I was so young. I don't remember what we were doing, but um, I remember being super active kid. So I was just, you couldn't stop me. I was just running everywhere. Um, and I think that, and even in, I think it was fourth or fifth grade, I did like a, a science fair project that was basically, I was, um, I would test my blood sugar and then go do some activity and see what would happen to it. And mm. I remember it was really funny because um if my blood sugar was on a little bit on the higher end, if I would go and rollerblade or play soccer or something like that, it would actually go higher. Mm. And I remember coming in or, or going to check my blood sugar and just seeing it go higher. And I was like, mom, this is so stupid. I started crying that the experiment's not working. You know, it's supposed to go down when you exercise, but because that's what I've been told, you know, by the doctors mm -hmm. and everything mm -hmm. that, you know, exercise would cause blood sugar to go down, which could be, which is definitely the case for some, but even today, if I'm, if I'm in normal range and I go do like a hard workout, my blood sugar goes up and mm. that's gluconeogenesis, you know, um, my mm -hmm. body's making or mobilizing, you know, different substrates so that it can make glucose from them. Um, which for a type one, sometimes it's hard to understand even, and as a, you know, fourth or fifth grader, whichever it was, I was just like, this is <laughs> dumb. And, mm -hmm. uh, but when I told my endocrinologist about it, which I had a great pediatric endocrinologist, um, and I, I still in contact with him today. Um, mm. I don't agree wow. with a lot of the things that he did because he just didn't know <laughs> yeah. what mm. I know now, but he was amazing at, at helping me understand what was going on and just working cool. with kids. But when I told him about it, he was like, this is an amazing science project. Cause he was like, this is science, man. You didn't know what was going to happen. And he made me realize <laughs> that, that, you know, this is, this is how science works. It doesn't, doesn't work out. And that's how you learn. And he's like, look what you're going to learn about your body. You know? And he told me kind of what was going on and, I don't remember what he said because I was so young, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was cool. And then in high school, I, you know, went off the deep end and did not take care of myself. <laughs> um, and were you I, using, uh, injections at this point or were you on a pump at all or what was that? Yeah, so from when I was diagnosed to, uh, age 13, I was just on injections. I remember using like the NPH, you know, and, the and then the fast acting and doing the, the combinations of those at every meal. And then at 13, I got a pump. So I checked back into the hospital and they taught me how to use that. Um, and um, then from probably age 13 till a year ago. Yeah, it's been a year now. Uh, I went off the pump a year ago and started doing injections again. Um, so at this point um, in high school, I was, I was on the pump and um, you know, I was, I, I regret a lot of things about taking care of myself in high school because I definitely saw, you know, me go from, uh, you know, get get on varsity, the varsity team and playing soccer as a freshman um, and almost starting 
to losing my starting position as a senior because mm. I just didn't take care of myself. And, oh. and I, and I didn't realize it because I, you know, I didn't feel bad or anything like that, but I just wasn't able to perform. You know, I just couldn't right. run. I couldn't, I just had, I got fatigued so quickly. Um, and so coach, you know, just put someone else in and, and, uh, so I, and I didn't realize that was happening at the time or that was why it was happening, but I realized now that that's why it was happening. Um, and so, you know, then I went off to college and I started in college is when I started to realize that the way I live my life, uh, and the, the things that I did every single day, whether it's what I eat, um, if I worked out, if I avoided toxins, all these different things had an effect on my ability to manage these blood sugars that I had fought back and forth mm -hmm. with my parents about managing throughout high school, you know? Um, and I was like, oh, why did nobody ever tell me this? You know, why did, why was it always, oh, whatever you want, just take more insulin. Mm -hmm. you know? um, or, or, you know, um, don't worry about stress levels. Don't worry about anything. Just, it was all about, you know, um, insulin levels or, let's check your thyroid again. Let's make sure it's okay. Let's do whatever, you know? Um, it was never about my lifestyle and that I could change that. And so in college is when um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was just kind of like taking classes and I, I started to realize that um, biology and chemistry classes were very hard unless I applied them to something. Like, like when I got passionate about health, I was like, oh, now this stuff makes sense. I can apply it. And so I started doing real well in these classes because I could apply it to that. And it was very relevant to me because of the um, things I could test. You know, I could say, okay, if I do this, is it going to affect my ability to manage blood sugars or, you know, go, um, my blood sugar is going to be higher or lower based on this activity. And it was just, it was interesting to learn about those things. And so that kind of got me started and, and it's been kind of a nonstop journey since then of, of, you know, gaining information. Wow. Even from a young age, you know, you had this idea of like a science experiment, which probably most <laughs> kids don't. That's really cool. And then pretty early on in college too, which might people might influence people to go off even more of a deep end. That's when you started kind of almost reeling it back in. Uh, that's a, that's a pretty amazing uh, feat, but yeah, when you, I can definitely relate when you said, you know, you didn't re realize how it was affecting your athletes and I didn't even actually, or athletic athletically i didn't even realize that till i was talking to you know dr donahoe over here one day and we both wrestled and he was like oh when my blood sugar was great like i pinned everybody and i was like oh that's yeah mine was i went in specifically would not give myself insulin to cut weight mm. <laughs> like i would wow. go you acidosis specifically to, to lose weight <laughs> wow so so i could doubly relate <laughs> yeah definitely yeah and there was probably times where i was definitely in ketoacidosis um, mm. um, or close to it at least, uh, during those, some of those soccer games and things. Cause I would just take my pump off for the games. Um, cause I didn't want to deal with it. And, mm -hmm. uh, I should have, you know, when I came out of the game, I should have put it back on and gave it a little insulin and stuff like that. Um, especially since the more I ran, the higher my blood sugar went cause the more gluconeogenesis I was doing. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so then you just said you got off the pump. Uh, yeah. you know, a year ago. So what, how has that these past couple of years still been on the pump and made you think about that, even that transition in the first place? Yeah. Well, what made me think about it is that I felt like the pump wasn't working. Um, and I couldn't figure out why um, I, uh, you know, like with the pump, they, they say, you know, put it in, uh, you know, fattier tissue, uh, absorbs better mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. And, 
I don't really have much fat on me. So I was running out of places to, to rotate them, you know, and mm -hmm. I've actually had endocrinologists tell me, um, you know, put it up in your shoulder blade. And I was like, no, that just sounds really uncomfortable, yeah. you know? And so I, I, I don't know if it was just, you know, the, the places had scar tissue and the, the sites weren't working as well, or I've even had theories as to, you know, maybe I, uh, um, the, the, that type of insulin. I was using Novolog at the time, maybe because I've been using that since since I was 13. So I was like, well, maybe I can switch insulins. I looked at the price of insulins and I was like, oh my gosh, those are really expensive. Um, and I just, I thought that, well, maybe I'll just try, you know, going back to the, um, like a long last, lasting insulin and then a short acting for meals and stuff and just seeing what I can do. And um, and yeah, it, uh, it it I feel like it works a lot better. And I definitely have more, you know, sites I can inject and I feel like I have better control. Um, and I felt like I was losing control. So that, that's what kind of spawned that. And, um, and so, yeah, now, but also at the same time, um, I was, I was transitioning to a very heavy animal based diet. Um, and, and I was thinking, well, how that wouldn't be affecting it. How, how would that, that should make it easier to control, you know, but with a pump, it just wasn't, didn't seem to be working. So one thing I learned very quickly, even while I was on the pump, is that when you're not eating a ton of carbohydrates, you need to bolus for protein, mm, um, yes. which which no one had ever told me before. Um, and mm. so I figured I was figuring that stuff out around four years ago or so, um, because that threw me for a loop when I would totally eliminate carbohydrates and have these high protein meals, and blood sugar wouldn't spike. But you know, three hours later, it was high, and I was like, "What's going on?" Um, and so that's something I've had to use because even now on injections, if I, if I give myself like the fast acting for a meal, um, or like the, like the super fast acting, like the one that acts within five minutes is done within two hours, like Novolog or Humalog or something like that. Um, I'll go low, uh, because the, it just doesn't digest that fast. And, mm -hmm. um, and so now I'm using Novolin R, um, but I don't even, I, even that I don't give directly after meals. I wait like maybe 20, 30 minutes and then I give it. Um, and that seems to work wow. for me. Um, so I'm just having to like kind of play with these things and inject them in certain timelines uh, based on what I eat um, and really I eat the same thing every day. So uh, it's, it's easy to figure out. <laughs> yeah. It's a easier sci science experiment on very many variables. Yeah, that's right. So let's dive into your diet then, since you brought that up, uh, uh, take us through kind of your typical day as far as your diet goes. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I can start with how I got to this diet because, yeah. um, so I, um, you know, in high school, I, ate, you know, just standard American diet. And then in college I was just eating from the cafeteria. And so there was just lots of processed foods and, and that kind of stuff. And, uh, so, so you can imagine how frustrated I was when I felt like I had better control then when in these last, you know, a few years when I went off the pump, cause I was trying to figure things out. I felt like I had less control and I was eating better than ever. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was frustrating. Um, but, but yeah, eventually, um, I started learning that, you know, whole foods was the way to go. And that, um, regardless of how many carbohydrates, um, or proteins or fats, like your macros, I was eating whole foods were just so much easier to control blood sugars. If I just stuck to those. And if I ate a processed food, it was just terrible. Um, and I, I couldn't, you know, get anything in control or anything in range. And so, um, yeah, Whole Foods started there. And then, you know, more like Whole Foods paleo type of thing. 
and then eventually, you know, discovered like low carbohydrate and because, you know, you know, as a diabetic, he was taught all about the carbohydrates. And so I thought that mm -hmm. you couldn't eat anything without a carbohydrate. I didn't know there was, that was even an option, you know? <laughs> and then probably like eight years ago, I came across that and I was just like, man, um, I should try this out. Uh, and, uh, and so I did, and that was super easy to control. And so then I, I mean, today I eat a very animal based diet. It's, it's probably 95 to 98% animal foods. Um, and the, the plant foods that I get are, um, usually if I have a low blood sugar, which is pretty rare, um, I'll eat some sort of carbohydrate, um, in a plant food and then spices and things like that um, in various animal foods that I eat, mm -hmm. I'll get some spices. So, but what led me to that was that, you know, as a child, I, I wasn't just randomly diagnosed with type one. I, I had had this history of, of autoimmune inflammatory conditions. Um, well, I guess just one autoimmune condition, which is type one, but a lot of inflammatory conditions. So I had chronic hives, I had asthma, I had allergies, um, all kinds of stuff. I had IBS. Uh, and so, um, wow. Yeah. And so no. changing my diet and stuff, I got rid of most of that, but there were still some things um, like I was still like, mildly allergic to cats. I used to be really allergic to cats. And, but then it got to the point where I could, you know, be around them. They could be in the house and I'd be okay. But if they came up and I petted them or they rubbed against my face, or if I pet them and touched my eyes, it would still get me. And so I've always looked for how can I control that, you know, inflammatory response and I used to still um break out in hives sometimes not like like I used to when I was a kid they used to just be all over me mm. um, like hives like as big one as big as my chest you know just right there wow and uh and so I would still get like around my waistline like around the pants line I would still get a hive or two sometimes on occasion so I was just like well what can I do I've always been looking to control that and so then this whole animal-based carnivore thing came out and I was like well I'll try it um, and I have to say that I am no longer allergic to cats. Um, we have, cool. we have two and I can, I could lick one and I'd be fine, you know, <laughs> and which is crazy to me because it has never yeah. been like that my whole life. Um, and so it's, it's kind of cool. So I know that there's some anti-inflammatory effect. Now I can't say that I'll do this forever, but, um, and I don't think that it's necessary for everyone to do to achieve health or manage type one diabetes. But uh, it definitely um, um, had an effect on me. And it's also the best my gut has felt in my entire life because that's always been something that's kind of lingered around. It's Again, it was way better than it, it was when I changed diet and ate more whole foods and, and healed things. But I, I can say I have absolutely no gut symptoms at the moment. Um, wow. So, yeah, which is exciting for me. So, I mean, the next step, which I was actually thinking about recently is like, okay, well, what what plants am I going to add back in and how am I going to experiment on this stuff to see what I can tolerate? Because, um, doing this type of diet is, has been incredibly gut healing for me, but now that the gut's healed, I want to see if it can tolerate uh, mm, some yeah. things more than it could before. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so my diet's pretty animal based. So lots of protein. Um, and, uh, the number one thing I get is, isn't that going to destroy your kidneys, especially as a type one diabetic, <laughs> yeah. which we can talk about if you want to, but, uh, yeah, but yeah. So, so just about like, it's really high protein and I, I try not to add a bunch of extra fat as far as like fat that doesn't come with the protein that I'm eating. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. 
um, just because I feel like the right ratios are there. Nature made them that way, and, and that's the way they should be. Um, mm. Unless I was, you know, some extreme athlete or something like that and needed more energy in some form, then maybe I would do that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's pretty much what I'm eating today, uh, these days. And so I eat like twice a day. Um, I usually skip breakfast and uh, eat uh, lunch and dinner. Um, and then uh, I just get, give myself, I use about um, 16 long lasting um, units. I use Lantus. And then um, for meals, it's anywhere from, uh, you know, maybe four units of Novolin R uh, up to maybe six or seven, uh, depending on the size of the meal, how hungry I am at that time. And even then, sometimes I break up that Novolin R um, to like a few hours after I eat, like a little bit, 20 minutes after I eat, and then maybe some more, two hours. Um, yeah. So, and, so yeah, and that's, that's pretty per... much what I do. That's per meal. So you're doing four to six per meal or per total day for all the, for the two meals? I'd say four to six per meal. Gotcha. Yeah. That's still such a small amount. And yeah. uh, if you're using that as a metric, that is a, a clear win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And no. so I've, I've, I really want there to be, you know, uh, um, instead of a continuous glucose monitor, a continuous insulin monitor. Like I want to see, Ooh. I want to compare, myself to a, an insulin sensitive non-diabetic, you know, and I want to see how much insulin I'm having to use versus how much they're using because, mm, you know, I'm yeah. just injecting it into a muscle. Yeah. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm just relying on proper absorption. And so I don't know if it's this, if I require more just to get that much more absorbed so that it works. Whereas a normal person's getting it right from the pancreas into the bloodstream. Um, so I want to know all that stuff, which, you know, I got to find someone willing to do that research and develop yeah. a, an insulin monitor because because i have no idea like is mm. that a good amount of insulin we're talking about hyperinsulinemia mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff is that a good is that a, a comparable amount to someone who's non-diabetic and i just don't know yeah yeah that would be really interesting to find out mm -hmm. um with your with your meals you said sometimes you split up the dosage of that does that depend on how much fat is in the meal because i know for me when I have a meal that's higher in fat, I do have to split it up more so than if it's lower in fat. Does, is that what you find too? Yeah, that's, that's what I was finding. So I was doing, I was adding a lot more fat. I was eating a lot of suet, which was um, like the fat from around the kidney and the cow, um, just to increase calories. And then I realized I didn't need that many calories um, like that I was eating. But um, yeah, I, I did have to split it up more when I had more fat. Um, if I gave it all, even 20 minutes after the meal, if I gave it the whole dose, I would go low. Mm. Um, and so I would, I would split it up because I guess the fat slowed down the digestion a little bit. And so, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, even I, sometimes I even feel like, um, I have gastroparesis or something because my digestion is slow, which, which would make sense. I think of being type one, as long as I have and being uncontrolled at times. Um, and so, so yeah, uh, it, all those things I'm just kind of sorting through and it, it's, it's just, it's so dynamic, you know, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. what I tell you guys today may not be the same thing I'm doing in a month um, because of things that change. And as I age, things are going to change. So um, I'm just kind of rolling with it, you know? Yeah, I gotcha. Um, do you also eat a lot of organ meats to try to get other nutrients or is it mainly just um, like skeletal muscle type meats? Uh, I definitely do organ meats um, and I actually did an interesting, um, I guess an, another experiment <laughs> um, uh, maybe about a month ago. It didn't really pan out or do anything, um, but 
I was again trying to reduce the um, any type of inflammatory sort of reaction. So I was trying to reduce histamine as much as possible. And so mm. um, I started eating kidney and taking um, desiccated kidney supplements because that has diamine oxidase, which helps you break down histamine. It's what your um, your adrenals and your kidneys actually make, so you can break down histamine. But I was just giving myself more of it. Um, and uh, like for the, the first week I was taking it, I had these really weird low blood sugars. Uh, and I was like, am I lowering histamine? And that's like somehow interfering with, with uh, or um, it was interfering with um, insulin um, receptors or something like that. And now all of a sudden I'm more insulin sensitive and I'm making myself go low. And so I toned back on the insulin a little bit and then, um, and that worked for a little while. It was fine. And then I started going, getting higher blood sugars again. And I was like, okay, that went back up. It was, it's kind of like the, the change did something to my ability to use this insulin. But then once my body figured it out, it went back to normal. Um, so that was, that was interesting. Uh, so anyways, yeah, I do uh, organ meats. I, I eat liver um, and then heart and kidney sometimes. Um, and sometimes I take the, the desiccated liver or the desiccated um, organ supplements. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Do you think that when you were taking, you know, those supplements, it was more of you're decreasing histamine production and that, that inflammation, those, those types of cytokines lowered the, you know, the actual insulin receptor or, and then that's what happened or what do you actually think was going on? And then eventually you became, you know, more normalized to mm -hmm. that type of breakdown. And so that's why the insulin then went up because your sensitivity then changed once you were kind of accustomed to that breakdown. Like, if, do you have any other thoughts about, you know, those potential pathways? Um, the, the only thing I can think of is just inflammation in general. So like if I was, mm. yeah, like decreasing cytokines or, or if the histamine was just getting in the way. So I did some research and I found that there is some connection between um, histamine and the effect on the insulin receptors. It didn't really specifically, I couldn't find a study that specifically said that higher histamine will, you know, cause um, uh, resistance to the receptors, insulin resistance or anything mm. like that. But there was some things that suggested that they do interact with each other in some way and they can affect each other. Um, and so that could have been what was going on. Um, and then why it normalized, I, I don't know. It could have been just my body got used to, or maybe initially I had that, um, the diamine oxidase in there and it, and it, uh, wasn't really doing what it was supposed to, but then my body figured out how to use it. Cause usually diamine mm. oxidase comes from somewhere different. Um, so yeah, so I, I don't know exactly, but I think it has to do something with inflammation. Um, mm. because when we're inflamed, that definitely, um, uh, can raise your insulin requirements. Um, for sure, just because your body's not going to respond to that insulin, you're not going to use that insulin uh, when you're in an inflamed state, um, use it like it should be. So, so yeah. I think uh, uh, on the subject, you know, you even said something that we almost glossed over that uh, when you got to more of this whole animal based diet, you know, your other inflammatory conditions kind of calm down too. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people don't even know that's really possible. And I see a lot of people, even in the diabetic community, um, thinking it's always an interesting question when I hear somebody, can your food cause type one diabetes? The direct answer is obviously no, but in an indirect way, your inflammation state and your autoimmune state directly impacts how you use those things and how your body processes those things. So right. to hear even going back about those hives and how those, you can lick your cat, like to say you have an IgE reaction back for your whole life 
and now you don't is incredible and almost empowering or it should be empowering. Yeah. And now I actually tested that directly. So when we got the cats, um, like my IgE antibodies were fine. And then we got the cats and they went elevated and I was like, Oh, that's the cats right there. Um, I was oh. like, well, I hope it's not a parasite, but you know, it, it's probably the, the, the cats. And then mm. when I went on an animal based diet, probably after the first three months I tested again and they were, they had been elevated ever since we got the cats every time I did blood work. And then after I went carnivore, they were, they were normal again. Um, That's so awesome. yeah, I mean, it definitely did something for me. Um, you published that as a case study. That's <laughs> I know. Right. Yeah. That's I awesome. Got the data. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Um, and so then is obviously there's been a big part of your life, you know, doing these experiments on yourself, learning more about this type of, or this side of health. But, uh, is this what's really pushed you to learn so much about medical sciences and nutritional sciences, or, uh, what's really inspired you to really dive deep into what causes, you know, health and, you know, dysfunction? Um, yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely tell people it's the, it's the, the fact that I was at nine years old forced to think about health, which is something that a nine year old doesn't really necessarily think about, Mm -hmm. you know, um, or at least maybe not, maybe not health, but I was forced to pay attention to my body, uh, in a way that most nine year olds don't. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that kind of inspired, uh, maybe this experimenting side of myself where I would just say, well, you know, I can, I can have an effect on my body doing different things. Let's, let's test it and see what's better or worse. Um, but as far as health goes, like just the general passion for health, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what um, makes me want to know more. And I guess I can always fall back on the fact that I, I have this chronic disease that no matter how hard I try, I'll never be able to can control it as well as an insulin sensitive non-diabetic, you know, I'll just never have uh, the blood sugars that they do. Um, and I always have to pay attention to things more. Um, and I think that, I guess, you know, lots of people or many people, um, take advantage of the fact that they don't have to pay attention to it. And then, and then that forces them to pay attention to it one day when they Mm -hmm. become Mm -hmm. unhealthy. But that, that, that point where you became unhealthy just happened at a much earlier age for me. Um, and, and most type ones, you know, um, so yeah, so, so I don't know. I mean, I remember in college, um, my college girlfriend and I um, decided to, to major in health and wellness. Um, at the, like we decided that was gonna be our major at the same time we, we got into it. And like I said, it allowed me to relate to a lot of the classes that I didn't really like um, otherwise. And so I think that it just became my thing. And then I also think that, you know, especially learning all the things that I've learned now, like you can't unlearn those things. I can't just ignore the fact that that glyphosate is absolutely terrible for humans, you know, and I can't Mm -hmm. just ignore that stuff. Um, I can't ignore all the stuff I've learned about how best to regulate my blood sugar and what works for me. But I also know that there's, there's two other diabetics out there who have a podcast who eat primarily fruit and that's all they eat. And they, they seem to be regulating their blood sugar just fine. Um, Mm -hmm. long-term, I don't know how that's going to work for them, but, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, I don't know. I, I guess, I don't know what makes me so passionate about health, but I, I think that it's just the fact that I can't ignore everything that I've, I've learned. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to know, and that's just built on built and built and built up. And now 
um, I have no choice. I, I have to live a healthy life. Um, I'd go crazy if I didn't. Wow. Well, I think that's a, a, a great statement in itself. Uh, I think that's really honest and pure. And it makes me think of the, the statement, you know, uh, one day or day one uh, kind of thing. Like you, mm-hmm. day one, when you're nine years old, you had to think about it. And in turn, that's normally like a motivational, almost like a sports type like saying. But when you think about our health, like if you don't think about it today, you know, eventually you will. Yeah. It's unfortunate. But so that's one day in the future. But today being day one or for you when you're nine years old, um, you know, you're forced to. So uh, sometimes I wish I could unlearn some (laughs) some of the things (laughs) I've learned. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the sweet full bliss of, of not feeling guilty if I have like a you know a cheeseburger uh, you know or something like like I know I know exactly how it's going to interact with me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like I'm annoying to people, uh, because, <laughs> well, I, I remember I so I after chiropractic school I went to live in Ireland for two years and I, I practiced there for two years, and oh, cool. um and ironically that was when I decided to stop drinking alcohol. <laughs> Um, so I went to Ireland and so here I am trying to meet people in Ireland and I'm I you know we go out to bars and stuff and they say you want to drink and I'm like no um, I don't drink and so they're either thinking they're thinking one of two things one this guy's no fun or two mm-hmm. I just made them feel bad because they're drinking you know um, yeah. like, oh, I don't drink and they say why um, sometimes they say why most of the time people just respect it and say you know you never know their father could have been an alcoholic or something like that Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but sometimes they say, why? And I say, cause it's not good for you. It's like, there's no way around. It. It's just like, I decided to for health reasons. And now they're like, this guy's a jerk. He just made me feel bad. Cause I just, mm-hmm. you know, drank four beers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, because that's what it was, you know, like I go and play soccer with these guys and they'd always go out for a drink afterwards every single time. And, you know, I, I went, I started to go with them and just kind of hung out and socialized, but then I just felt like it got, you know, they just got weird. I don't know. Like the people just didn't want to, um, uh, talk to someone. And then they would all start getting drunk and I'm sitting here sober and I'm like, well, mm-hmm. this is no fun. It's not near as funny as they think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with people. If they want to drink, I don't care. Like I, I don't judge people at all, but I just found that it's been like that for lots of different things, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm so, um, I love my family, like my immediate family so much because they've always been like, so what are you eating now? You know, we want to make sure you have something or because I know that mm-hmm. it's always different and they know that it's important to me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been, it's been interesting because um, it almost gets to the point where um, conversations about, um, you know, like trivial things, I feel like that don't really matter as far as like the the future of our planet and the health of our species and and uh health of of humans in general i'm just kind of like ah, i don't really want to talk about that uh, i don't really want to talk about you know the latest episode of whatever um even though i enjoy those shows i just feel like that's just entertainment it's not something that's gonna uh move us forward mm-hmm. so the more and more i've learned about health and for whatever reason that's driven me to this to health i just i feel like I don't know. I just feel like we are, we are so, um, as a, as a society, we're so caught up in things that don't matter. Um, and we need to start focusing on things like why are so many people becoming type one diabetic or getting so many autoimmune diseases? Why is that happening? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and stop talking about, you know, whatever it is that doesn't really matter and start 
asking ourselves questions about how can we can prevent these things from happening in the future? Because honestly, I mean, my whole, my whole first book is about how our chronic disease epidemic is a, is not a problem. It is a symptom of human beings being removed from their natural environment. And it's just one of the symptoms because the other symptoms are, you know, the, the, I guess, um, unfortunate, um, outlook that our species has if we keep going down this path. So, um, so yeah, that just got real serious, but uh, <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> stuff that kinda, I kind of care about, and it's it's all stemmed from I think you know how early I was affected by by uh, a disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a a clinician and a professor at at chiropractic school that literally, even that he was so focused on things like low back pain, he he understood that what he was doing somehow affected global warming in the world. And he realized there was this bigger picture of healthcare and how healthcare relates to us as a, as a state, as then a country, as a, as a globe. And uh, he literally would get up every day and feel proud to do the things he would do and help the people the way he did, because he knows it's part of a bigger picture because there's this bigger picture that needs to be um, addressed and Mm -hmm. taking care of you is the very first step into doing some of those things and seems really small and minuscule when you think about the you know how our species is going in a direction and how everything is just crashing and burning literally california is on fire right now and um but yet it's taking care of yourself is the most immediate best way to start making those types of changes exactly Um, and that's that's you know one of the main uh solutions and themes of my first book is that we need to start with ourselves individually and that mm -hmm. if we the same things that are destroying our health are the same things that are destroying the planet and if we started everybody started making decisions that were best for health we would see we would see uh, a huge shift in uh the problems and issues going wrong on the planet i think yeah Yeah, definitely yeah yeah Um, I think it, it almost reinforces the point that people need to pay attention to their health because a lot of times they don't understand the symptoms that they're having is related to the habits that they that they go through throughout the day. But at the same time, a lot of people have a hard time, um, identifying that they are having symptoms, like even just a simple, like belching and burping, like people think that's normal and that's mm. not normal. Like that's a sign that you're not digesting very well. And um, so like having, mm. you know, you know, the thought just popped in my head, like having everybody on a continuous glucose monitor or some sort of thing that helps them understand that what they're eating is actually impacting their blood sugar. And that has effects not only immediately, but then down the road too. Yeah. It also empowers them too, because yeah. hey, look, you've got control. You can, you can change this right now. Uh, you don't have to go to the doctor and have them do something, some procedure or give you a medication. You can change this today. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, the, I think, the most important thing is that we've outsourced the ability to improve our health um, to a medical profession that's not really interested in health. And so that's a, a big problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you can empower people and show them that you know, they can take back control of their health individually, um, it's, it's one of the best things you can give to people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when, when you're working with patients and you're working with clients, is there, you know, if they come in with a lot of, you know, inflammatory conditions and, you know, just very generic, do you think that addressing the diet is 
number one or getting them to move and exercise number one obviously we want people to do both those simultaneously but what do you think is like the easiest thing for somebody to start doing when taking their health back um the easiest thing is definitely well i feel diet um but i can't say the same for everybody um i think that some people would um you know are find it easier to exercise you know that's that that gets them out there more um but i will i i will say that i'm a firm believer that it doesn't matter how much you exercise if your diet's not good you can't out exercise a bad diet you just can't mm -hmm. um but i also i really like to bring to a, a people's attention that in the health industry um diet and exercise are talked about very very heavily and those are very very important However, um, they are not the only two things we need to be worried about when we're talking about what's create, what's causing our, um, our epidemic of chronic disease. So I just did a webinar for um, uh, our patients at the clinic and I was showing that, you know, I was showing, you know, the, the my plate document from the government and the, <laughs> the Harvard food pyramid and that kind of stuff and, and showing what they were telling us to do. You know, and then I showed these graphs um, uh, that I stole from somebody else, but I showed these graphs that showed that Americans are doing what these recommendations are saying. They are exercising mm. more. They are drinking less. They are smoking less. They are eating according to those guidelines. Uh, they're eating uh, more fruits and vegetables, more grains, um, things like that, which I don't necessarily agree with that we have to eat those things. Um, but we are doing those things yet chronic disease is, is still are still skyrocketing um so it's mm. like clearly those things are important and we can argue about what the best diet is to eat um, but there are more things to talk about and those things to me are um the amount of toxins that we're exposed to um this day and age um starting with with heavy metals and then going to plastics and phthalates and and then uh, all the synthetic chemicals that our bodies have never really had to deal with um, and then um, the other big one, I think, is um, uh, autonomic nervous system balance um, and the, the imbalance in our stress response that, that we have um, living and, you know, having our um, evolved stress response and being in our modern day world. It's just not a very good match. Um, and so when that stress response doesn't develop properly and when it's constantly stimulated, that creates a lot of issues. And then the third one. Um, I think is a huge issue that I don't know the solution to. Um, all I can do now is create awareness to it is electromagnetic fields. Um, mm. I think that that is um, way more uh, of a contributor to the issues we see uh, as a society than we think. Um, so, so yeah, I like to draw attention to that. I, that health is way more than just diet and exercise and that it, it also explains why people can just have their diet and exercise spot on. They're eating a completely whole foods diet. They do the right amount of exercise. They've got it all dealt down, but they still have symptoms. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point that it's not, it's not all just about diet and exercise because um, I know so many people that come into my office that they have a perfect diet and they exercise and they do all these good things, but yet they still have just like, disastrous uh symptoms um so being able to help them navigate 
the, the things that they're, they're missing, whether it's the environmental stressors, um, the toxic exposure, um, there's a lot of things that go into it. And I th- I'm sure a lot of people listening to this get overwhelmed by all these different things that they might have to pay attention to. But for the most part, you know, starting, starting in one spot and working your way out is a good, good um, way of looking at it. But at the same time, um, just being aware of all these things is helpful because then you can start to pay attention to where those things are coming into your life, whether that's you're getting a lot of EMF in your office or um, you are, you know, having Wi-Fi on a night that's causing that or you have a lot of toxic exposure um, in certain areas. Um, you can start paying attention to those things. So that way you can start eliminating those things or at least decreasing those things from your life. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, I think it can definitely be overwhelming for somebody uh, just starting off a uh, couple, you know, I think a lot of people have heard about, you know, toxins and if anything, maybe people have seen, oh, you should stay away from BPAs. Obviously there's way more, like you said, heavy metals and plenty of other things to be aware of, um, you know, and, and how you can be exposed to those type of um, toxins, but um, probably not a lot of people. And it's probably something that, you know, we don't talk enough about on this podcast is the whole autonomic balance that, that you brought up too. Uh, just, and so because we haven't talked about it, what do you, how do you go through patients? How do you go through with your clients? Um, and can you just dive a little bit more on what that, what that means to some people? Yeah. So this is one of the hardest ones. Uh, well, that and EMF are some of the hardest, um, things that I, um, I have to address with, with clients because it does lots of times it does involve like, um, major shifts in the, in the way they're living their life. Um, Hmm. and, and sometimes it's, it's things that you can't get rid of, you know? Uh, so the autonomic nervous system, this is how I explain it. I tell people that it's the, it's the system in our body that's perceiving our environment through our senses, um, and telling your body if we're in a safe or threatening environment. Um, and based on that, your body has the correct response. It either has a, um, you know, a stress fight or flight response that if you're in a stressful situation, your body will, you know, mobilize things and put blood where it needs to go so that you can get away from or fight off a threat. Or if we're in a safe, if your senses are perceiving the environment as safe, then you're doing, um, more things that, um, uh, that like rest and digest is what they call it. So you're digesting, you're detoxifying, you're sleeping, you're procreating, those kinds of things. Um, and so um, we should have a nice balance. And so we, I think we like to think of things as black and white and say, okay, we're in fight or flight or we're in rest and digest. But in reality, we're always getting, um, I guess, um, uh, a stimulation of both of them. One's just higher than the other, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is uh, especially relevant to, to the heart um, because if we get an imbalanced signal to the heart, that can lead to very bad things. Um, but our body's always getting constant signaling from both um, the sympathetic and parasympathetic aspects of our autonomic nervous system. And so the problem is uh, that in today's world, um, not only can we can that autonomic nervous system not be fully uh, or not correctly developed as we age? Um, If someone has an abusive childhood or um, a stressful childhood or didn't get the right signals from mom and dad when they were an infant, that kind of stuff, um, that system can kind of be broken. Or I can say that the the baseline for 
what your body learns as safe is off. And so you tend to think you're in a situation that's unsafe when it's completely safe because your, your, um, your sympathetic uh, nervous system is just too on alert. And, uh, and also we look at, you know, the, uh, the natural environment for, for mammals um, provides uh, or, or makes it so that we're in this non-stress state most of the time. And we have a stress response only when necessary, only when there's an actual threat. Um, and so that's what most mammals do. They, they only have a, a stress response when their life's actually in danger. But humans have these big brains and we can, we can overthink things. And we're the only species on the planet that can think our way into a stress response <laughs> um, just by thinking that something bad is going to happen to us. So we can, we can see something bad happen somewhere else in the world, like on the news, or see something bad happen to somebody else and then think or be afraid that it's going to happen to us. And that puts us in this constant state of, of, uh, of fear and sympathetic um, stimulation. Or we can have something bad happen directly to us, not life-threatening, but, uh, or maybe it was life-threatening, but we got away or we, we survived. Um, and we can literally think about that, not just for you know, the rest of that day, but for the next month, maybe even have a fear of that for the rest of our life. Um, because we're, we, can, we have this forward-thinking this, um, forward ability that um, uh, other animals don't have. Uh, literally, if a zebra gets chased by a cheetah and it gets away, it shuts down that stress response within two minutes and doesn't really think about it again unless the zebra or unless the cheetah comes again, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so <laughs> these big brains are a blessing and a curse, right? Especially in our modern day environment because we have all these things that are, I think, um, unrealistic uh, as far as um, what humans should be able to do. Um, I think that it's when you look, when you think about, you know, humans, when we lived in nature, um, we were kind of masters of our environment. We knew where to get many different sources of things. And today uh, we have to, you know, do one thing in order to attain money so that we can buy all those things that we need. And so it becomes very stressful when everything you need is dependent on money and on one thing. So I'm not saying money's bad or that capitalism mm -hmm. is bad or anything like that. I'm just saying that it's very stressful. Look what happens when we don't have money. If we become homeless, our health becomes threatened because we don't know how to, to get what we need without that one thing. And so we end up sacrificing our health um, to, to work our jobs and attain money. And then the saddest thing is, is that when we get that money, we don't even know what to buy to <laughs> achieve health, right? We don't even know how to spend that money to create health. And so there's this huge disconnect and, um, and that all stems, or it's all related to, it's all creating this imbalance in our stress response. Um, all the things that we, we can see around the world are forward thinking, the idea that we have to attain money to get all the resources we need to survive. Um, you know, all those things are contributing to this imbalance. And, and when that happens, um, our body can, can kind of forget how to get into that non-stress state. It becomes so used to um, the stress state. It's kind of like, um, I mean, maybe some younger people don't know about this, but like, like uh, I'm not that old, but you know, even then, but um, like driving a stick shift car, you know, the clutches are always different, right? And it's just like, if you're driving the, the non-stress car, you get used to that clutch. And then at first, when you drive the new car with the stress car, you know, it, the clutch feels weird. But then it get, you get so used to have being in that stress state all the time that the clutch becomes normal again. And it's almost 
weird to go back to that old clutch. Mm, yeah. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of the state that people are in. We're just go, go, go all the time. And we have all these unnatural stressors that humans really aren't um, uh, designed or evolved, whatever you believe uh, to, to handle. And, uh, and so that's leading to all kinds of stuff. I mean, if you think about it, if my body thought that I was in a stressful state and I was trying to get away from or fight off um, a threat to my life, it's not thinking about sleeping. It's not thinking about digesting. It's not thinking about um, procreating. Uh, and it's not thinking about detoxification. And so people who have an imbalanced stress response, sometimes they can get insomnia or they can get digestive issues, like real bad gut issues. Um, they can have sexual dysfunction. Um, they can have um, all kinds of issues to deal with detoxification because their body is never in that state where it focuses on those things. Um, and, and so that's just a major issue. And so I actually posted something, I think, I think it was Saturday about ways you can balance your autonomic nervous system. And uh, I put chiropractic on there and it's just like social media. I hate it, man. Like people are just like, <laughs> I agree with everything except chiropractic. And I was like, well, that's, that's funny because chiropractic is probably the, the one thing on that list that has the most research behind it as far as autonomic nervous system balance. Yeah. And, uh, and people just, they just hate on it. I don't know. I don't yeah. understand. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so that's kind of what that is and where we're at. Um, and so I guess, I guess we can go into like, how do, how do we create balance in the autonomic nervous system? And um, I think that it's very important that we, um, I think a lot of times people, you know, they'll say, okay, I'm going to get healthier, uh, but I don't really want to give up my, my fast food or my candy or whatever. So I'm going to, I'm still going to eat those things, but I'm going to take these supplements because they're supposed to be good for me. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, um, and that's just not, that's never going to get anybody healthy, which is one of my main beefs with functional medicine. Um, mm. as it's traditionally practiced is that it becomes about taking blood work and then saying, okay, I'm going to give you these eight supplements, you know? Yep. Right. Um, and that's just not a path to health. And, um, so anyways, it's the same thing with the autonomic nervous system. Lots of times we think, okay, I can spend more time in nature. I can meditate. I can do yoga. Um, I can do neurofeedback. I can add all these things to my life to try and counteract the effects of all the stressful things that are happening. When in reality, mm -hmm. we should be saying, okay, what of those things is really necessary for my life and what can I get rid of? Sometimes you can't get rid of it. Sometimes it's your kid and you can't, you can't give up your kid, right? You can't get rid of them. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, or sometimes it's, it's your job and, and in the immediate, in, the, in, the, uh, in that, that situation, you can't necessarily give it up immediately, but maybe you can start thinking about how down the road you can set yourself up so that you can leave that job, mm -hmm. right? You know, but, but yeah, some, we need to think about how we can we should remove things. And even if we do that for a short period of time, um, like one of the coolest things I've heard in the last year is uh, something called dopamine fasting, where you basically mm. just, you, you take you know half a day or a whole day if you can, and you just basically get rid of everything that can cause a dopamine surge, which dopamine is like the feel good hormone. So you know every time we get a notification on our phone, we get a little surge of dopamine um, mm -hmm. or, or things like that, or every time um, even we talk to somebody or we eat, you know, or we eat something that we get a little surge of dopamine. So it's when we do a dopamine fast, it's literally, we're doing pretty much nothing. You know, um, we're, we're not watching TV. We're not eating. We're not, uh, we don't have our phones near us. We're not interacting with people. Um, we're not, uh, you know, uh, listening to music or anything like that. It's really hard to do, but it really trains, um, your body to stop having that immediate, you know, stress response because the dopamine is a feel good thing, but it gets you because it gets you addicted to 
those things that cause these little stress responses, you know? And so it can be really resetting to your body to just go like what I do or what I, what I attempt to do, because it's really hard. Um, it's just, I set my hammock up in, in the woods in my backyard and I just try and sit there all day and I just write about whatever I'm thinking or, you know, and I can only do that for so long, but, uh, but it is really nice. Um, if, mm. if you can keep yourself from worrying about all the things you're ignoring, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so like that's, I, like you guys can comment or say whatever you think about all of that. I just said, that's like monk training. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I feel like that'd be really hard to do because even, you know, not interacting with people. So yeah, being secluded and then even, you know, the thoughts, you know, it's then becomes a lot of mental strength to not think about certain things, you know, literally just let thoughts come through you and pass through you. That's a really hard skill to develop. Um, and dopamine fasting sounds really interesting. Uh, and it will almost seem like you definitely need to do like baby steps to get in there. Because uh, the people who developed all our social media apps definitely knew what they were doing when it came to notifications <laughs> yeah. and buzzes and beeps and casinos. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so I'm not sure how you feel about all that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've actually never heard of dopamine fasting, but I'm really interested now. So I think... I might have to try that here in the yeah, near future. Yeah, even if it's just for like, you know, four hours or something. See if yeah. you can do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I love your point about uh, chiropractic and balancing the the autonomics because I was, while you were talking, I was thinking about like how much, especially now, you know, in these last eight months where COVID and all the stress and the uh, election and all that stuff that's going on that's causing so much stress and all my patients just come in and I see just like through my assessment, I can see how much their nervous system is out of whack as far as their autonomics. And, mm-hmm. and then, so I'll, every time they come in, I just do everything I can to help drive their parasympathetics um, and calm down their, their sympathetics um, and chiropractic, man, it does, it's, it can be pretty powerful in regards to balancing them because I've seen so many different things um, related to those autonomics change just after one adjustment. Um, I've had hormonal hormonal symptoms change because we calm the nervous system down. I've had, um, you know, anxiety type symptoms um, calm down from that. Um, and so, yeah, chiropractic is one of my biggest tools as far as helping balance the nervous system, taking the stress off of a person's body. For sure. Yeah. I, uh, I, I make a, I make it a point to like, like people will, will, will have heard that I said procreation and, and, you know, just being sexually active and, and uh, reproducing, you know, like I make it a point that there's a huge impact there because um, I jokingly say, and my wife doesn't like this, but I jokingly say that I've gotten four women pregnant uh, through <laughs> chiropractic, you know, nice. because, yep. and, and, and one of them was very early on. It was just when I was in clinic in school. Um, uh, one of my friends, wives, and uh, and I was just like, God, so we, I joke with him about that. Um, right. But it's just it's funny because these were women that were trying to get pregnant, and they'd been trying for over a year, sometimes more than that. And you know, we start adjusting them, and all of a sudden they get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Uh, or women that um, uh, had had multiple miscarriages, and they just couldn't get through full uh, term pregnancy, and uh, and we start adjusting them, and they have their first child. 
and so I, I don't know exactly what's going on, but uh, when I talk about the autonomic nervous system, I make it a point to say that, you know, men can have, you know, erectile dysfunction if their autonomic nervous system is imbalanced and women, their bodies can be like, are you kidding me? We're in a stress state right now. We're not having a baby, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's just going to shut that process down. And then we start balancing that, which chiropractic, I mean, it's very clear in the research that it has that effect. It balances the autonomic nervous system. Um, and then women, you know, their bodies say, okay, yeah, we can, we can have a baby. Let's, let's do this. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty straightforward to me. Oh yeah. <laughs> what a motivator too. Uh, you know, that's yeah. good that you make a point to use as an example because pretty much almost every human, even if mentally or, you know, consciously isn't a value to them, there is still some instinctual drive to want that. And when they hear that, that definitely will make people perk up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, um, uh, some of those women actually came to me because they read somewhere that that was the case or someone else It happened to someone else. So it's not just the four I've seen it. And I don't even have a, like a, um, a pregnancy or, or, or um, uh, practice, you know, like I don't, I don't have that type of practice. This is just, you know, women that have come along and said, yeah, they read somewhere that, um, that it could help. And I said, yeah, mm-hmm. it definitely can. I can't promise anything, but let's, let's do it. You know? Mm. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. And you can even then see relating back to diabetes, you know, you could be changing nothing. Nothing could be uh, different about how you're living your life besides the stress that you are then exposed to, um, whether it be from whatever factor. And then you're, you might see your insulin resistance change and your blood sugar go higher and you have need more insulin for whatever reason, you know, to tie it back all into that, you know, if nothing has changed, but all of a sudden what you were doing wasn't working anymore, your autonomic nervous system might be way more wound up. Um, and I actually think that's part of the reason why I have a, more of a, a gluconeogenesis response to working out than, you know, Dr. Donahoe over here, because when he weight trains, it'll definitely go down. Mm-hmm. But my autonomic nervous system, almost just based on my personality and just how wound up I am in comparison is just so much higher. And so I think my body is much more easy, easily to have those types of responses faster and therefore you can see that in your workouts as well um so it it can all be glucose monitor everyone needs it (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure and and it makes sense too because if you're like literally if your body thinks it's it's uh, in a stressful situation it needs to get away from or fight off a threat um it's gonna it's gonna start mobilizing things like you're exercising you gotta Mm -hmm. use your muscles here in a minute so Mm -hmm. it's gonna do gluconeogenesis so that's gonna cause higher blood sugars Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's some evidence that shows that, um, I mean, they specifically looked at cortisol, that high cortisol levels, um, make it harder for the body to, um, uh, maintain normal blood sugars, you know? So. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, that was a fun rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows how we got there? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but it seems like, uh, you know, recently between some of your blog posts and, and you know, the, the book that your most recent book that you've been focusing a lot on heart disease mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you talk a little bit about that in terms of uh, this overall health and chronic disease and how it relates to heart disease and, and how you see it come, show up in your practice and everything that you do. Yeah. It's a very big um, question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I'll start off with just saying that, you know, at some point, some endocrinologist office I was in, 
Uh, you see posters on the wall that, you know, type one diabetics are, are more prone to you know, kidney damage and, to, you know, their eyesight to go bad and diabetic neuropathy and just all these things. And at some point I was, I was asking the doctor, like, what are, why are diabetics more prone to these things? And they said, well, you know, it's, it's, um, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what they told me and how they made it sound to me, but I, they would basically say that micro, microvascular would, um, vasculature would get damaged and that would lead to these issues. Um, mm -hmm. So basically the, the, the small capillaries would get damaged and we get, we get um, um, tissue damage from that. Uh, so there's small capillaries in your eyes, you know, down in your feet and there's small capillaries that are far away from the body. So um, and, and the kidneys will be filtering more sugar over time. And then supposedly that damages them. And it was all about the, the damage to the, um, micro, microvasculature. And so, um, you know, you learn, or I learned over time that diabetics are two to four times more likely to get heart disease, whichever form that may be, whether it's a heart, heart attack, whether it's atherosclerosis or heart failure, um, you know, type ones are just more likely to get that. So I was just like, oh gosh. And so every time, you know, that kind of stuff came up, I would just, my ears would perk up and I would kind of soak in as much as I could. And, you know, in the end, the same things that cause heart disease are, are the same things that cause same imbalances that happen, um, are the same things that cause cancer and autoimmune disease and, um, you know, all kind of, every disease, they're all the same underlying issues. And they're basically mm -hmm. our body reacting to um, uh, an environment that's not well suited for, whether that be dietary or toxins or whatever. And so, you know, obviously when you talk about heart disease, everybody wants to talk about cholesterol. Um, and again, the same answer as before, um, uh, the same answer as um, I was giving earlier, you know, people want to talk about diet and exercise when it comes to health. It's way more than that. So heart disease is absolutely way more than cholesterol. And so, my I cut, kind of my, my three-pronged approach that I give people is that um, preventing heart disease is about being metabolically flexible, which means your body can, can readily and easily go back and forth to burning carbohydrates and, or fats um, whenever it needs to. Um, it's about controlling inflammation and oxidative stress um, through various different ways. Uh, and then also balance in the autonomic nervous system. So I'll, I'll throw those out there. And we already talked about the autonomic nervous system, but we can go into any of those things. We can go into cholesterol, metabolic flexibility, um, or, or oxidative stress and the sources of those, like whatever you guys want to talk about. Yeah, let's, uh, let's dive into metabolic flexibility. Because I think when, you know, as a diabetic or just anybody, if you start following a diet, whether it be super strict keto or more animal protein, you know, based or even vegetarian, you know, you can get in these pretty strict holes, right? And then once you come out of it, you might have even worse response, you know, if you start changing things up. And this idea of flexibility, be able to burn both fat when needed or carbs when needed and but not yet a damage or be really a hindrance on your body, I think is a really important concept because I feel like that more mimics what is in reality or what was more primal to us as humans at, at one point. And I think most people don't even think about that. How am I gonna come out of this diet? What will this really look like? Will this damage me? You know. So I'm really interested by the idea of metabolic flexibility. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah. And I like that you said that because the way I tell people what metabolism is, it's the ability of your body to take what you eat and digest it, metabolize it in a way that doesn't harm you. Um, mm, I love because that. Because if you, if you're eating the wrong foods, your body has to do a lot of things to the, to get to, to digest and process that food that may end up harming you. Um, and so metabolic flexibility is, you know, our, our bodies have this, um, amazing ability to, to be able to use multiple different fuel sources. It can use fats, carbohydrates, you can use alcohol, it can use protein in dire situations. Um, but it can do all those things to keep you alive. Now the two main ones are fats and carbohydrates. Um, Mm. and, and if you think about it in nature, uh, there is, I, I really can't think of any situation where a food from nature would come with both fats and carbohydrates at the same time. We've made a lot of modern foods that way. I always give the example mm-hmm. of a cupcake that is the perfect, you know, fat and carbohydrate rich food. And mm. so, um, when we think about, think about metabolic flexibility, um, your body has mechanisms that allow it to burn fat and allow it to burn carbohydrates and most of the time it's burning both at the same time but it, there's predominantly burning one or the other and so if you think about the um the western diet and how many processed carbohydrates and carbohydrates in general we have available to us um since the body will always burn carbohydrates first well it'll burn alcohol first but after that it'll burn carbohydrates and then protein, but that's really rare, only in like starvation situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then fats are last. So if you think about that, if you eat a bunch of carbohydrates all the time, your body's always going to burn those carbohydrates first. And so you're going to use those carbohydrates for fuel. And then the fat you eat with that always gets stored. Um, so if you are eating a ton of carbohydrates, the fat you're eating does become the fat that's on your body. If you're not eating carbohydrates, the fat you eat does not become the fat that that uh, is on your body. Um, but when we have these high carbohydrate diets all the time, the body almost forgets how to, um, to use fat for fuel because it never really has to. There's all these carbohydrates around. Um, and so that you become metabolically inflexible. Okay. So you cannot readily go back and forth. And this is why people who go on low carb diets get the so-called keto flu because their body has no idea how to, to, get energy um, without those carbohydrates around. It has to relearn almost how to, just like me when I go surfing, every time I go, I have to relearn how to surf a wave again because I don't do it often enough. And um, Mm. it's the same kind of thing. Your body has to relearn how to start making ketones and use fatty acids for fuel. And so you get this period of, you know, up to two weeks or four weeks where you just feel sluggish and um, you get these weird like keto breath symptoms and things like that. Um, because your body's adapting to learning how to, to burn those again. Now, I, uh, I don't think that you have to completely restrict carbohydrates to, to be metabolically flexible. Because uh, I know plenty of people who are very fat adapted that eat carbohydrates every day and they wake up in ketosis. You know, After they don't eat, they, they wake up perfectly in ketosis, but they're eating whole foods. And so that's the key. Uh, is that you're eating whole foods and you're not, um, and you're eating enough um, animal protein that you're satiated, because that's the problem is that people are eating processed foods um, and they're eating 
um, foods that aren't satiating and they end up eating way too much. Hmm. Um, whereas if you can control your portions by getting enough animal protein, you're never going to overeat. Uh, if that's the center of your meal, you're never going to overeat because your body's just like, I can't eat anymore of this. It's, I just mm-hmm. can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, I think the key whole foods and then focus on animal protein and then you'll stay metabolically flexible. Um, so I was going to segue into like insulin resistance, but I forgot how I was going to do it. So I'll pause there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a definitely a concept that most people I don't think talk about enough. Um, Because then you can talk about it too. You can transition this flexibility with as you go through different phases of life too. Like you were saying, you might not be on this on on your current diet forever. I mean, you might you know who knows what it's going to look like a year from now. Mm -hmm. You know, you might find that you, you were doing really well on keto or, you know, one being somebody, uh, but then you start working out even more. Like I'm almost, I was low carb and now I'm almost transitioning to moderate or even almost even higher carb, but, and I'm trying to decrease, um, the excessive amount of fat, like not adding more fat as I'm doing, doing more workouts in the gym, more CrossFit, more running, all these things. Cause I feel like my flexibility is, is changing. And, uh, but that's not, only the only definition of that metabolic flexibility going back to how your body can handle everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes where all, with all the hormones like insulin, like your blood sugar. Um, Cause if those things aren't stable, then the flexibility is going to be just more fragile. For sure. And uh, so. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you mentioned insulin, mm-hmm. which is obviously very important to a type one diabetic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, it's a little bit misunderstood. Um, I think that, well, first of all, I think that for the average non-type 1 diabetic, uh, a fasting insulin is probably the best um, blood marker that you could take, and it's just not taken often enough. For, really? for mm-hmm. people like us, we take it, and it's always a little bit skewed, I feel like, mm-hmm. because we just have, we're injecting insulin at times when, you know, uh, the body doesn't usually need to, but we need to for like whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to get a, an accurate fasting insulin for people like us. But for the average person, a fasting insulin is super important because usually it's not taken and you could have a completely normal blood sugar. Um, but if your fasting insulin is really high, you are insulin resistant because your body is having to use more insulin to keep that blood sugar where it, where it should be. Um, and so that's insulin resistance. Um, your body's not responding to the insulin it's making. But then I also think that insulin is misunderstood because, you know, in type one diabetes, when they figured out that they could give people like us insulin and control diabetes, they immediately assumed that insulin's main role was to take, uh, glucose and shove it into cells or allow it Mm -hmm. to go into cells. And that's very true. It does that, but only at a certain point. So, mm-hmm. and this is, this is also different. So what I'm about to say may not even really apply to us as, uh, as, um, as accurately as it would to a, a someone who's not type one diabetic. So insulin, when it's secreted in the pancreas, the first thing it does is it shuts down the production of glucagon, um, which is the, the, the hormone that tells your body to mobilize fats and proteins and, carbohydrates and things so that your liver can make sugar from them. But if we have insulin present, 
then clearly there's there's sugar, but glucose around or else, or else it wouldn't be secreted. So we don't need glucagon anymore. And so that happens right there at the level of the pancreas. Insulin secreted and then immediately glucagon shuts down. Um, so you can imagine as a type one diabetic, if we're not injecting it right near the pancreas, that's not happening right away. We're injecting it in our arm or a leg or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a little bit of a delayed response there for that. Um, but then the second thing it does is insulin winds up uh, near the liver and uh, it tells the liver to shut down gluconeogenesis. Because obviously if insulin's around, then we don't need more sugar because there was sugar in the blood that told the body to secrete insulin. Mm -hmm. um, and then insulin gets out to the level of the tissues. And the first thing it does before it tells the tissues, to, the cells in the tissues to take up uh, glucose is it tells the tissues to shut down the release of, you know, fatty acids or, or amino acids or um, uh, anything that could become, the liver could change into glucose. So again, we're just shutting down this process of the body making its own sugar, uh, making its own glucose. And there's multiple steps to that. So um, in this sense, you know, people think of insulin as this very anabolic hormone, this growth oriented mm -hmm. hormone, but in reality, it's just anti-catabolic. Um, so it's just shutting down these processes that are telling the body to break down tissue so we can make more glucose. And by doing that, we get more, um, the anabolic processes take over so we get growth, right? Um, rather than this balance. And so at that point, if there is still sugar in the blood, after we've stopped gluconeogenesis, we stopped the breakdown of all these things, if there's still glucose in the blood, then insulin takes that and puts it into the cells where it opens up the, the receptors on the cells. And so there's a lot of steps there. And so if someone is truly insulin resistant, and we're talking more like type two diabetes right now, um, mm -hmm. if someone's truly insulin resistant, it had to like break down all those steps and had to get really bad to the point where their blood sugar is still high after we did all those things. And, and then it's so high that the, blood, that the, the cells can't stuff in any more glucose and they, they become resistant to that insulin, which is you're, you're way down the line if you're insulin resistant. So that fasting insulin that I'm talking about is super important because if it's a little elevated but not super high, we can, we can intervene right then because, you know, you think about it too, like if someone goes to the doctor and um, they say, oh, you're pre-diabetic, you know, your blood sugar is not over one, your fasting blood sugar is not over 126, it's like 115 or something. Um, mm -hmm. And they're saying, we're just going to watch and wait. It's like, well, they've already been insulin resistant for a long time with a normal blood sugar. And then, you know, so it's just like, we could have intervened a long time ago to stop this mm -hmm. from happening because it's going to be way harder to stop from happening if it's gotten that far. Um, right. And so I like people to understand that that's the process of insulin and it does more than just control blood sugar. Um, and so from a type one diabetic perspective, we really need to think about that um, because when I take insulin in my arm or somewhere, it's going to take a minute a lot longer uh, for that to get absorbed through the tissue because it's not going directly into the bloodstream um, and for it to make it to the pancreas and to the liver and to the rest of the tissues to shut down this whole um, um, this whole um, process of, of breaking tissues down to make glucose. So um, it's really, really complex and we have mm -hmm. to think about it that way and not just putting sugar in cells, you know? Totally agree. hundred percent. I think, uh, and you said, one thing I, I would just want to echo too, well, a couple of things, I, I would echo it all. Um, but, you know, insulin is not anabolic, but anti-catabolic. And that 
leaves the room for growth or you know if you are thinking about it from the anal anabolic standpoint you know i think so many people do think about it as this anabolic hormone so i think that's really important number one and number two i remember when i was learning that about glute four so insulin gets sugar into the cell through glute four but glute four is only needed or insulin and glute four's relationship is only on adipose you know skeletal muscle and then uh what is it heart no yeah on cardiac cells not, it's not even needed for neurons. It's not needed for brain tissue. It's not needed for sperm. It's not needed for all, all your other tissue types. Like, don't need insulin. And, and how much of your energy is your brain consume of your body, but yet your brain doesn't need insulin to get that energy, exactly. right? And, exactly. and it's so more, it does so many more things than just mm-hmm. glucose into the cell. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, I like that you say that too, because... Um, when you talk about how, you know, um, uh, the fat cells and the muscle cells are the ones that are really controlling the whole show here. Um, mm-hmm. And so if we think about that, you know, this is, this is very relevant to type 1 diabetes, but it's, it's explaining what happens in type 2. Um, mm. So if you're a type 1 diabetic and you're eating a bunch of vegetable oils, stop right now. Don't do that anymore. Um, because I, um, you know, I think this may have been why I saw a little bit of reduction in insulin um, when I, when I uh, you know, cleaned up my diet um, because I wasn't type two diabetic, I wasn't insulin resistant, um, but I, I probably was a little bit and didn't know it um, because when you eat polyunsaturated fats, those are said to be so good for us and this can take us back to heart disease too, but um, polyunsaturated fats are said to be heart healthy and super good for us. So we're mainly talking about vegetable oils. We're talking about canola oil, corn oil, uh, safflower oil, soy oil, those types of things. When your body um, uses those fats for fuel, because of the way the, the double bonds are and why it's, why it's unsaturated in the first place, because of that, it, this may get technical, but it, it changes the ratio of um, basically uh, the molecules that hold electrons that help us make energy. It changes the ratio in when our body uses those for fuel to make energy from them. That's all we really have to go in there. Um, But because that ratio changes, that sends a signal to fat cells to be insulin sensitive, which you're like, great, insulin sensitivity. Great, that's great, right? No, not in fat cells. Mm Because when your fat cells are insulin sensitive, they're taking up all the the energy and they're storing, they're storing fat, right? Um, And when that happens, um, it triggers or it kind of signals, well, once your, once your fat cells hit a certain threshold, which everybody's threshold is a little bit different, which is why someone could be super skinny and be insulin resistant. And someone could be really overweight and not be insulin resistant. Um, once your body gets to its personal threshold of, of storing fat, it triggers the rest of the body to be uh, insulin resistant or like basically the muscles to be insulin resistant. Um, and that's where we get insulin resistance. And so then someone who challenges their body with a load of sugar will have a higher blood sugar because their body is insulin resistant. Um, but it, it's kind of controlled by this, this dance between the um, insulin receptors in fat and muscle cells. And so if we want to, there's some really interesting research that shows um, that if we eat saturated fat from animals, that it flips this process around, we get a different ratio, the fat cells become insulin resistant and then that triggers the rest of the body to be very insulin sensitive, or at least mainly the muscles to be insulin sensitive. Uh, and that's the situation we want. So 
it just shows us from a physiological perspective that we are not meant to eat these these um, industrialized, you know, very processed seed oils, um, and we're 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 designed to eat saturated fat from animals um, mainly, I think. But even there's saturated fats in coconut oil and things like that. Like that is that is what our physiology is made to do because of what happens when we when we eat those things. So you can clearly see mm -hmm. that we're not. We're not supposed to be insulin resistant at the level of the muscle cells. We're supposed to be insulin sensitive, and the thing that creates that is animal fats. So, so, so yeah, it's my little rant on that. It's a gorgeous rant. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I'm we. I'm pretty sure that was in even the 2017 article that uh, Grady and I were just reviewing in our past two episodes. That you know these pufas are great if you want your adipose to become insulin sensitive but as you just mm -hmm. described in the physi physiology because some people might just sit, see that and, and it's in a review article i'm like oh great insulin sensitivity fantastic mm -hmm. but when you understand okay a then leads to b then leads to c you don't that's not what you necessarily want and that's why the context of everything and thinking about the bigger not just the context but the bigger picture taking a step back and okay what is it really going to change now i'm just looking at these topics in just a box uh, you can't just look at insulin resistance in one way. You can't just look at how much total insulin are you using. You can't, you know, these, if you just look at it one way, you're going to pigeonhole yourself like, oh, this is great. But yet your overall health will continue to decline. So I think understanding or just attempting to view these complex problems for what they are complex and as a whole picture is what's needed. And that's where learning about your body and attempting and seeing what changes is what's really, really important. And doing that with a healthcare team is really, really important and doing it from all aspects. Cause you've talked about multiple sides of it, not just your diet, but exercise, but everything. Cause it all will impact it. So definitely. Yeah. So, and then I also did want to ask you, um, the insulin's role when it comes to heart disease specifically, mm -hmm. Um, since we've, we're kind of like going in and out with a bunch of different um, yeah. topics, but uh, since we're, we're kind of getting probably near the end uh, of, of this recording, just uh, I think a lot of people will be interested to hear your perspective um, on, on how that plays a role, which would probably be my guesses in a similar way you've already <laughs> kind of talked about a yeah, lot yeah, of things. Well, just that, to kind of bring it all yeah. back together then. Like, so mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I, I mean, I don't think that, um, like hyperinsulinemia, like high levels of insulin is directly causative in heart disease. However, if you have hyperinsulinemia, then you are definitely setting yourself up for heart disease. It's like one of those things you can test and say, okay, yeah, other things, since you're hyperinsulinemic, then other things are also happening that are causing heart disease. And those things are inflammation. You know, at the, at the bottom line, like if we're talking about purely atherosclerosis, you know, coronary artery disease, that supposedly blocks arteries and cause heart attacks, which there's evidence that that's not the case either. Um, mm -hmm. But if we're talking about that specifically, it's inflammation. And, and we already talked about earlier how inflammation is a main driver of insulin resistance. So that whole process we just talked about with, you know, the unsaturated fats and the insulin resistance uh, uh, developing that way, you can get insulin resistance a whole different way. And that could be from high inflammation. Um, you can, and so you can get hyperinsulinemia just by being completely inflamed. And so that could be from, you know, toxic uh, toxins in your body. It could be from um, 
uh, poor food choices, um, you know, uh, different inflammatory foods, processed sugars and grains and all that kind of stuff. Um, it could be from endotoxemia, from leaky gut and poor dental health. Um, it could be from, you know, there's, there's endless examples of, of how we could be inflamed. And so you start to see this picture of the world. Stress, we talked about stress. That could be one of them. We talked about this world that humans are living in um, and, and how this inflammation, um, it, it's hard to avoid all these sources of inflammation. Uh, and so you really have to kind of be diligent about these things. And, um, and so that inflammation is what's really driving heart disease. And so people want to talk about cholesterol and they want to talk about um, LDL and particle size and all this kind of stuff. And all that stuff is mostly irrelevant if we don't have inflammation um, in the body. Mm. We don't have oxidative stress um, because, you know, cholesterol has never been the cause of heart disease um, and it, it never will be, even when you know, even if the cholesterol is damaged and, you know, they look at LDL particle size and it's smaller because it's more damaged. It's like, yeah, maybe those are, are um, going to contribute to it, but they're only caused by that oxidative stress and inflammation from all the poor health habits that we have as a society. And so without those things there, I am pretty convinced based on what I've looked at, that LDL, regardless of particle size, regardless of of um, particle count, it's pretty irrelevant. Um, and that there's plenty of research that shows that people with higher LDL and, and higher cholesterol in general live longer and have less chronic disease, including heart disease as they age. Um, so that's a whole backstory there um, about that, that whole mess. But, uh, but yeah, it's hyperinsulinemia is, is, um, is again, just another not it's not the problem it's another symptom of what's going on um that's creating um disease of diseases diseases of all kinds but you know heart disease we can talk about specifically so mm. yeah and i think uh as diabetics i don't know what, why i keep seeing this in like different diabetic forms but there's this fear of injecting insulin and having too much insulin because of how you're controlling it and relating it to heart disease or relating to cancer. And I was like, I don't know who told you injecting so much insulin is going to give you cancer. No, I was like, doesn't mean that there's not some kind of association in the background, but as a type one, that shouldn't be your main priority. Your main priority should be learning how to live with your diabetes and then decrease inflammation and decrease all these other stressors. But then if you are perceiving, because we're already great, like you said, at making ourselves stressed out and what you're doing is going to give yourself heart disease or cancer if you're just going to be losing that battle every day. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you say that too. And I'm glad you brought that up that uh, it, it's kind of a different ball game with us type ones, mm -hmm. you know, cause mm -hmm. um, yeah, like I could, I, sh I should inject as much insulin as I need to control my blood sugar, you know? Um, but even then I, I've, I've questioned and I've, you know, had thought processes before that it may not be the, the high blood sugars that are so problematic. Um, they're not good. I don't, I don't want them. Um, but mm -hmm. even like a, a little, a slightly higher, but stable blood sugar could, could be okay. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, for someone to get to the point, like a normal person that's not mm -hmm. type one diabetic to get to the point where they're hyperinsulinemic, things have gone really wrong, you know, and they've been going wrong for a long time. Um, if, you know, 
I could, I could, uh, uh, I could go out and eat a, a, a cake right now and have to give myself tons of insulin to, to cover that. Right. And go, um, you know, in a few hours or, um, or the next time I could take a fasting insulin and it would be super high. Um, because I just injected that insulin into my body, you know, I know it. And, and, mm -hmm. um, and so it's a different ballgame. Like I, I needed that, that insulin, even though it made me hyperinsulinemic for a while, potentially, maybe, mm -hmm. um, I needed that to keep my blood sugar under control. And that doesn't make me hyperinsulinemic to the extent that a, a full-blown type two diabetic would be, because that's a whole different process. And it happened. Um, there's so many other things that went wrong before they got to that point. Um, yeah. So yeah, we, we should not be freaking out about taking or, or even I think comparing uh, amounts of insulin, you know, because yeah. I had, I've had a, um, I tend to get negative attention from the vegans, but um, <laughs> uh, I, but I had, a, had a type one diabetic um, vegan uh, on Instagram. All he wanted to know was like, how much insulin are you taking? How much insulin are you taking? I'm just like, you know, I'll tell you, but it, it's really irrelevant, you know? Um, because who knows your body, the, that guy's body could be, um, much worse at absorbing insulin he's injecting right. than, than mine is, or, um, it, it could just be, I mean, why, when I was, you know, um, uh, 10 years old, did I use less insulin than I use now? You know, why honeymoon phase? It's just, it's so across the board. Um, and we shouldn't be comparing that. We should really be just focused on, um, I think I think even more than uh, blood sugar levels, we should we focused on um, uh, inflammation. You know, markers of inflammation like mm -hmm. C-reactive protein or liquid peroxides or um, 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, which is just a marker of DNA damage, or um, I don't know F2 isoprostane. Just all the different markers, GGT, that kind of stuff. Just markers of oxidative stress that we could look at because mm -hmm. that's really what I care about as far as long-term health is, is how much oxidative stress and inflammation we have. Yeah. Cause it's not always as, as simple as what is, what is your blood sugar or how much insulin you're taking? It's all the other markers that you can get on even just a simple blood test of like C, CMP or in a CBC. There's so many different things that you can delineate from those numbers because of their relationships, not just the individual numbers. Cause a lot of, a lot of people come in and say, oh, my doctor said that everything's perfect. And then when I look at it, I'm like, well, maybe just looking at it at the surface level, it looks fine. But it, those relationships say something different. Um, and so getting taking a step back and looking at the big picture of your health is something you constantly need to do because we can, especially as type 1 diabetics, where we're always experimenting with different things, different forms of exercise, fasting diet, all those things, we get focused on how is it affecting my blood sugar, which is a good window into our bodies of what, what's going on. But at the same time, we also need to take a step back and look at the big picture of the overall function of our body. Because I know there's been times where I've pigeonholed myself into looking like my blood sugars are really great, but then everything else was like on fire. And I'm like, oh, okay, this isn't, this isn't good. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I'm surprised that uh, you're such a big proponent of fasting insulin um, opposed to like something like C-peptide or something like that, um, you know, on blood markers, especially in, you know, type two or just even non-diabetics. Uh, Cause I feel like that's such more of a stable uh, type marker and there's less variability in terms of that, that moment in time, what's going on with them. 
Yeah. Well, see peptide for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that marker as well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's, you know, we know what it's going to be for us, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but, uh, but for average people, yeah. Like that's a, also a great marker or even, uh, the trig to HDL ratio is another great one to look at kind of insulin sensitivity. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, all those things are good. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, the tri- the triglycerides and HDL are usually taken by, um, the average doctor, but like C peptide and fasting and so on, they're just not really going to look at that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I've had, I've had clients that I work with uh, in my coaching, go and ask for them and the doctors are like, why, you know, wow. like, what, do you, yeah. what do you mean? Why, you know, like, come on. <laughs> uh, so yeah, pretty, pretty sad state of things. Yeah. Uh, but hopefully that changes, you know, if one thing is for sure in 2020, I think there's, there's some, not a, not majority, but some are trying to understand this bigger thing about autoimmune health and overall health. You know, if somehow we could walk away from all of this, uh, this year and moving forward of saying, what really impacts my life? What really impacts my health? Because uh, I'm sure you've had some people come to you purely because they're like, yeah, I am at a higher risk. Like, what can I do? Um, you know, that's definitely not most people. Um, but you know, there, I have seen, there've been a couple people in my office that have come to like, I, I want to protect myself, but you know, I know it's not just taking vitamin C, like how can I protect my health, my life long-term? And, and I hope that there is a shift of thinking about more health and differently and, and looking at insulin and looking at, you know, all these things in a different light and perspective. Uh, I think that's a very <laughs> long shot, but hopefully we can continue to take steps to move, you know, a lot of people in that, in that way. Definitely. So, definitely. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, this, this has been fun. I feel like we can continue to ramble on and talk about a whole bunch of different <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> topics. Uh, but uh, you know, let's kind of start wrapping up and go through like a round of uh, burst my beta cells. Uh, you know, so uh, just th- something that's whether it's be personal to you or just even to your diabetes or, or maybe just something outside your diabetes. That's been really just, you know, busting at the seams that kind of has been frustrating you what's been uh one thing for you dr hussey um i think on a daily basis now i what really frustrates me is like the more and more i look at research and do my own research and read the studies and stuff like that i realize how bad most of it is (laughs) um and how I don't know how, I mean, most of the nutritional research that's out there is, is all epidemiology, which, mm-hmm. which cannot show anything causes anything. It could suggest that there's associations, but it can't prove that anything causes anything. And so the majority of our, our government guidelines and, from, and uh, academic institution recommendations and things like that are based on studies that cannot prove anything. Um, because it's really expensive to do studies that can prove anything when it comes to nutrition. Um, and so when I, you know, I post things on Instagram and I try to avoid, you know, social media conversations, but sometimes I have them. It's just so hard to, um, especially in a social media comment to explain the the sorry state of the research, you know, and it's like, mm-hmm. I'll always read the research and I'll always try and learn from it. But the more and more I read, the more and more I realize that we are, um, I guess we're relying on a whole body of information that, that is 
impossible to gain really any complete understanding from. And, and so it almost makes me like when I look at the, the, the four tiers of what I use to determine whether or not it's a, this is a health practice I should do, research is probably the fourth one, you know, um, the mm. fact that there may be some research behind it. Um, and, and like, I'll, I'll do something even if there's absolutely none. Um, the only time I'll, I'll use the research to, to rule out something is if there's clear evidence in the research that it's bad for you, don't do this. You know, but if there's no evidence that it's not good for you or it's never been done, it's like, that's not a reason not to do something. And there's so many people that are just like, there's no research behind that. It's just like, well, well, I'm sorry, but if you look at the state of the research, it really tells us nothing. Um, and that's just frustrating for me. Um, and, and I, I wish that more people understood that. And I wish that research wasn't put on this pedestal. Um, and I wish that, uh, you know, the, the headlines for research wasn't, weren't so misleading um, mm. and that kind of stuff. Uh, so, so yeah, that's what, that's what gets me um, a lot these days. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the time we're living in right now, because there's so many, so many different people that say, Oh, there's this research article and they keep shoving it in your face. And it's like, okay, but I can give you just as much from another point of view. that's going to say something totally different. Yeah. Um, so yeah, hanging people hanging their hat or on research and going in on all in on research, um, is another thing that also frustrates me too, because, um, just seeing in my practice, the things that may not have a whole lot of research behind them, but man, they sure work for a lot of people that I'm working with. Um, yeah. and it's, it makes me laugh when, cause I've, I've had a couple of patients come back to me and say, Oh, I was talking to, to talking to my md friend and um they said that this new thing that we're doing has no research behind it i'm like well first of all do they even look at the research related to this i doubt they are because it's not even on their radar um so they're just discounting it just because they haven't learned it um but then at the same time research is so vague most of the time that you're gonna get you're gonna get positives on one end and negatives on the other um so yeah it is very frustrating especially now when when there's so much chaos going on with health and everything yeah yeah, yeah. well and and as an example just to give people an example like i used to work uh, at a clinic that was more or less right across the street from the virginia tech um school of medicine and research institute so mm-hmm. i treated a lot of these uh, either uh, medical students that were doing research or you know phd students that were doing research or even some of the professors there and everything and I'd always ask them, Hey, so what are you working on? You know? And they'd always tell me I'm working on this specific enzyme and how it works with this. And this one very specific biochemical pathway. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, what do you hope to do with that? And they would say, Oh, you know, they want to make a drug to affect that, mm. that biochemical pathway. And so then I started to realize how reductionist our understanding of the body is and how, we only really know components of it and how we're probably never going to understand the full complexity of this, this biological ecosystem that is a human body. Mm-hmm. And, and to, to think that we ever will is kind of egotistical. And, um, and mm-hmm. so when you start to realize that you realize that all this research really tells us nothing about how the body actually works. Um, and they're really just trying to influence different things and not look at the repercussions of that. So it's, it's uh it's frustrating because then people throw that research in people's faces and say oh this is this says this and it's just like well 
you know, I wish that was how the body worked, but it's interesting what you just mm-hmm. showed me, but, but it, it doesn't really tell us much about how to live our lives, you know? Yep. Yeah. And such a clear example of that, I think is the whole fat and sugar debate that um, has been going on for years and years now, where initially it was, Hey, fat is bad and carbohydrates are good. And now it's becoming more and more clear that that's, first of all, it's not that simple, but at the same time, cholesterol really, like you said before, has nothing to do with your cardiovascular risk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Greg? What is uh, something that bursts your beta cells? Um, I would say recently, it's funny that um, Dr. Hussey brought this up because lately my uh, uh, port sites for my pump have been kind of wacky on me and um, they haven't been, I don't know, just like throughout the, the site, it hasn't been real consistent. And so, um, so I've been working on trying to change my sites, but um, I've been relatively lean this summer. So it's been hard to find a good spot to, to change to. Um, so I've been playing around with some different spots, but um, it's been, it's been tricky. I've, I've had a lot of a lot more highs lately because of it, because I've gotten some kink pumps, but um, still working through it. But doesn't doesn't um, help the fact that it's just, I mean, it's just very frustrating when everything's going right, you're doing everything right, and then boom, the the hardware breaks down on you and and messes you all up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I almost uh, when you're saying just you know a year or so ago, Dr. Hussey, that you switched to. Uh, back to injections and almost like I was looking into switching pump providers, you know, switching my company. And that almost feels like such a big step. You go so long doing one thing and and every day, and then you switch to a different pump or you switch back to injections. And it's almost like this like weird end of a relationship that you don't know how to proceed, you know? And and it's just like, I I don't want to break up with you, but I I don't think this is right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it was definitely weird when I went off. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been since I was 13 and, uh, and I'm the, I'll be 34 this month. So, um, so yeah, it was definitely weird. And I still like when I'm drying off after the shower, like I avoid the spot where my sites used to be. Mm, yeah. I don't want to like tear it off. You know, I'm like, Oh wait, it's not there anymore. It's weird. <laughs> right. Right. Still after a yeah, year, I, I'm still doing that. Yeah. Cause it's like, for me, I feel like my body personally tries to take me off by pushing, like kinking my sights. Like, I feel like I have so much trouble uh, based on um, fat content and then the muscle concentration uh, at certain areas when I try to put it in. It just doesn't work out when then with scar tissue, like I probably 50% of the sites I put in end up getting kinked. And, uh, and so uh, great with, with your recent, you know, uh, thing that's been bursting. Yeah, I, I can relate for that too. And, and I've thought about switching back to injections and it's just like such a weird thought, but uh, uh, I was surprised that I just put a site in like my more, my adductor, like, you know, lateral or medial side of my quad. And, and um, that normally comes off right away and it's been in for 24 hours. So I'm taking that as a win right now. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but recently for me, it's been almost more of a, uh, I've been going, going, going so much these past couple of weeks that I'm not thinking about when I need to change my site or change my like sensor for my CGM. 
and I get ticked at myself all of a sudden when it's just like a immediate stop. I feel like I don't get a warning. And, uh, and then it's like, Oh yeah, I need to now stop, you know, after these couple patients, you know, now I need to do this and move these things around to, cause I didn't plan ever. I didn't put it in my day and, uh, cause I'm not paying attention to it as much right now. So, um, balancing that management of just time management of changing those with the busyness of life has been definitely something that's been, uh, driving me crazy recently. Mm. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. And then, uh, Dr. Hussey, what, where's, uh, you know, you mentioned a couple books. Uh, what are those titles of those books? I, I'm almost embarrassed that I don't have them in front of me right now. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, yeah, no worries. Um, the first book I wrote was, uh, in 2018 is called the health evolution. Um, why understanding evolution is a key to vibrant health. And that one, I, I relate more of like, you know, the future of our species and how, and health is, is centered for that and everything. And then uh, the second book I wrote is just a small ebook uh, and it's about the heart. Um, and it's, uh, I'm actually, I've actually completed a, an unabridged version of um, everything about the heart that's being edited right now. Um, so people can look for that, but those books are on Amazon. Uh, they're on my website, which is resourceyourhealth.com. Um, and that's where I have my blog, um, and where I do the health coaching. And then I'm also on social media a little bit reluctantly, but I'm, I'm on social media. Um, and my handle is just, uh, DR Stephen Hussey. Cool. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely, uh, you know, have to do this again sometime because it was a, it was a pleasure to talk to you over, you know, Zoom and uh, on this podcast. And, you know, I hope to, you know, when you speak at a conference, once we, once those start up again, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe see yeah. one of those too. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. I'd love to. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and just, uh, uh, and conversing with you about literally so many topics. I, I, I did not think we'd go down these types of rabbit holes. <laughs> Those are the best podcasts though, where you don't even know where you're going. Yep, exactly. <laughs> uh, anything else that you want to leave, um, you know, a lot of diabetic listeners to you or just anybody else, uh, you know, just kind of last closing statements. Um, I mean, maybe it sounds cheesy, but just don't be afraid to like take your first step. Nobody expects you to, to wake up one day and be perfect. Um, like I, I tell people all the time that, that I, uh, I didn't wake up yesterday and decide I was going to live like I do now. Uh, there mm. were so many, you know, individual steps that I took. And so if you just keep taking little steps and not afraid to take the first one, then you'll, you'll end up where you want to be one day. Perfect. I love it. All right. Well, for everyone listening that stayed into the, to the last bits of this episode, we appreciate you, uh, you know, feel free to, share this podcast and we'll catch you next time on the die buddies podcast. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you found value in today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review. It really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can follow us on the Die Buddies podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or moral outrages, you can email us at thediebuddiespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.